1: hi welcome back to the new books network my name is adam bobek and i'm a phd candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the university of leipzig i am so very excited to welcome back to the program for the fourth time graham harman and to welcome to the program for the first of hopefully many times christopher whitmore Graham Harman is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, also known as SCI-ARC, and Christopher Whitmore is Professor of Archaeology and Classics at Texas Tech University. Today, we're talking about their new book, Objects Untimely, Object-Oriented Philosophy and Archaeology, published in 2023 by Polity Press. Professor Harman, Professor Whitmore, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Professor Whitmore... What inspired this book and how did you put it together?
2: So we invited Graham to Texas Tech. Uh, It was back in February of 2014 to deliver uh, what we call the Harrigan Lecture, which is really one of our most prestigious uh, lectures at the university. Uh, The talk, as I remember it, was entitled Ecology Without Networks. But so, in the course of Graham's visit, I, I asked him to sit down for a conversation that I also recorded um, with a kind of open possibility as to what might become of it. And we covered a lot of ground in an hour, Graham. I'm sure you remember we talked about uh, your influences, Heidegger, Whitehead, Latour, how they conceived of the time and how that translated into, at that time, OOP, object oriented philosophy. We discussed Lin and Symbiosis. We discussed the mixing of objects indicative of different times into a kind of single crucible. We also discussed a few specific archaeological examples um, just to kind of uh, work through them uh, in conversation. And at the end, it actually became clear to both of us, I think, that we were approaching this kind of central thesis of the book, Objects Generate Time, from different directions, and after I hit stop on the recorder, Graham turned to me and said, "We should write a book on this." And I was, I was kind of like, "Wow, okay, that's great." So the idea actually emerged through that conversation, uh, which we actually originally included as the first chapter of the book, didn't we, Graham? Yes. Um, and then, and then we we scrapped it after an anonymous reviewer suggested, I think fairly convincingly to both of us that. We were throwing our readers into the deep end of the issue without really providing the kind of background that an introduction would bring. And, and so we changed it. Um, but that's that's kind of how the the book came together. What do you think, Graham? Is there any, did I miss anything?
0: No, you, no, you didn't. I, I would just add that I love these events where I get invited by other disciplines. Um, you know, Dante was exiled from Florence. I'm I'm exiled from philosophy and I end up sleeping on the couches of other disciplines. So now I'm, I've been sleeping on the couch of architecture for seven years. <laughs> uh, and then I ended up co-authoring a book on archaeology. And I usually come to these fields with zero or close to zero prior knowledge. And so I, I have the enviable role of being a student in all of these interactions, because I'd really love to be a student for my whole life and just keep learning. And this book was another opportunity to do that. Uh, from talking to Chris, I can get a sense of the state of the arts in archeology, and archeology. Uh, span And it went from there.
1: And maybe Professor Harmon, now you could elaborate also on what audience you two had in mind
0: for a book like this. I think too, we hope that two audiences come together and maybe they form a, a new hybrid audience. Uh, Chris is very much involved in a set of controversies in archeology span Uh, involving the role of objects in that discipline. And then on my side, of course, object-oriented ontology and philosophy and in whatever other other disciplines uh, uh, have picked up, triple O, as we call it, with architecture being the main one at present, but there have been uh, readers in all kinds of different fields. And so I think we're we're hoping to some extent that this book creates its own audience, even though there are a couple of prior target audiences. I know for sure that all of Chris's people in archaeology will be digging into this book, and I know for sure who, people who read my books are going to read this one too, but I'm hoping a new, a new, uh, third audience arises in some way from this.
2: I love the archeological metaphor there, Graham. D- they will be digging into it. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe now is also a great time. Professor Whitmore to talk about what you think brings
2: archeology span and philosophy together. Oh, it's a great question. Um, I think archaeology is, with any science, must struggle to define what it regards as its fundamental entities. And uh, with that comes, you know, an obligation to build into its uh, scrutiny of them some consideration of how those entities exist. And, of course, the moment you begin dealing with those kinds of questions, it, you're going you're gonna to fo- follow that path to f- uh, philosophy. Um, it's really, this has really always been, uh, you know, it's been a major concern of mine because archaeology has kind of long been estranged from their objects in a way, because treating them as intermediaries to a past other than their own kind of keeps them at arm's length. And we point this out in the book, you know, a philosophy, perhaps out of its concern with the human subject, has given a lot of consideration to history, but comparatively little uh, kind of uh, to archaeology. And there are exceptions, R.G. Collingwood, Merrilee um, Salman, and Allison Wiley. And forgive me, my dog is going to interrupt the program
0: here and there. Uh, he wants to say hello. I didn't hear um, your dog, so I suppose you didn't hear the cruise ship horn here in Long Beach. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounded.
2: I, yeah, objects are interu- uh, interrupting our conversation. That's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, <clears throat> this, this kind of common concern that Triple O and archaeology have with these really humble banal idiosyncratic objects kind of provides common ground and and there's a lot more than this uh of course but but i think that um that relationship between archaeology and philosophy especially between graham and i I mean graham i think graham's interest as you said has been peaked because he didn't you know know that much about archaeology he says and in fact when i reached out to you graham in 2009 about princeton networks you admitted to knowing very little about archaeology But at the same time, I think that the kind of archaeology that, as you came to learn, I was doing kind of really interrupted popular expectations about what archaeology is. I mean, if you're working with uranium mines or World War II ruins or oil infrastructures or last week's garbage, I mean, that's kind of strange. Um, and that piques someone's interest and it allows you to kind of be drawn in. Okay, so archaeology is working on this. What makes it different? Um and so I think that that's one of the kind of basis for our set of relationships. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot more to say about this, but I think that um, one of our reviewers, John Cogburn, who Graham knows well, uh, was extremely attentive reviewer. And the way he put it was just beautiful that, you know, in thinking, rethinking archeology span in terms of how objects generate times provides the kind of friction that good philosophy demands. And, Right. and maybe that's that set of relationships is something that, that that Graham and I share as well but um
0: Graham how would you like to well, how's archaeology well, can first I would say you say that, that you're being modest about one point which is that even though I came with very little background knowledge about archaeology Chris came with quite a bit of background knowledge about philosophy because uh, archaeologists, like architects and like other fields I work with, tend to be very curious, tend to be looking for intellectual stimulation. And so Chris had a strong background, especially in Bruno Latour and Michel Serre, which helped uh, give him access to my world before I had access to his. And I agree that uh, friction is necessary in philosophy. And you've, you've heard versions of this from different philosophers in the past. Deleuze talks about how philosophy springs from an encounter with something else. Um And for me, it just has to do with the fact that other disciplines have more urgent uh, concerns than we have. Philosophy can move at a very slow speed, rarely matters how slowly it moves, unless you're writing a memorial address for someone. Um, We we have very few uh, time-sensitive projects in philosophy. Archaeology has a lot of architecture, perhaps even more. And so this requires people to make decisions in those disciplines, whereas we can postpone decisions. Uh, philosophy tends to fill with obsessive compulsives and maybe to some extent with procrastinators. You, you can't really procrastinate in, in archaeology. Maybe you can be a, an obsessive compulsive. So um, I think I have this thesis that every field has its own typical psychological issue. With with architects, it's narcissism. And I don't think they'll mind, even if they're listening to this. With, with, with philosophy, it's obsessive compulsive, so procrastinate. But uh, It's been the great pleasure of my working life to meet with people from other disciplines, and I want to do more co-authorship for that reason. My first co-author book was with Manuel Delanda, who's also a philosopher, but there's differences between us in other ways. He's from Mexico. I'm from the U.S. He's a Deleuzean. I was originally a Heideggerian. There's also a generational gap between me and Delanda, so it was kind of a senior-junior relationship, whereas Chris and I are coming from different fields, and... uh, I look forward to other collaborations because they bring out a side of me that I can't generate myself by definition.
1: The first sentence of the book is objects generate time. Professor Harmon, what does that mean?
0: I would say, first of all, let me say that I'm often in the position of being the one who reifies things, right? Who turns things into objects that other people think are not objects because I'm an object oriented ontologist The word object is very broad for me and it covers a wider range of things than it does for other people. But in this case, I'm in the position of a role reversal because I think other people wrongly reify time. I call this in the book, the wind tunnel theory of time. We have this sense that we can feel time passing because we hear cars drive by and the wind blows against our face. And people wrongly tend to identify that with something called time. I heard it called father time again the other day on the podcast, talking about how LeBron James has fallen victim to father time. Well, I don't think there is any such thing as father time. So that's the first point. Uh, There is no wind tunnel that's spraying change at us. What we call change belongs in the heart of each individual object, and those changes occur at different rates. So in the case of a human being, uh, barring accident or unfortunate illness, we are living on probably an 80-year time scale, most of us, give or take 20 years. Um, Whereas for worker bees, it's very different. For statues and monuments, it's very different. For mountains, it's extremely different. And so uh, time, for me, is something found in the heart of objects. So that's uh, one point. Another point, although I don't want to jump ahead of your questions here, is that um, since uh, Einstein and Minkowski, there is this idea that, there's a single space-time, a four-dimensional space-time. Space and time, for me, are not part of the, a single continuum, collapse into each other. I think there may be mathematical reasons that works for physics. That doesn't mean that there's any philosophically compelling reason to do it. Recently, Lee Smolin has talked about his intuition that one of the problems with physics is that time and space are actually different. In object-oriented ontology, they're completely different, and we'll get into that later, how they, ha- they involve different kinds of tension between an object and its qualities. Um, And then I think there was another point I wanted to make about time, but I've lost it in my enthusiasm. But (laughs) but, uh, yes, to answer your question in the simplest way, uh, Chris and I both see time as something produced by objects rather than as an external force that makes things happen to objects. Exactly. You
2: know, in the case of archaeology, the fields always sought to situate objects in time, right? And so it starts with this kind of notion that we have this kind of container there to put them into. And that means assigning them to a particular slice of a continuum or removing, you know, removed from the present. And this is key. Um, But, you know, that objects generate time means accounting for how objects and by that, I mean, old things that are encountered by archaeologists, which in the case of Greece could be anything from ceramic fragments to monumental stone walls, how they make the past possible in the first place um is something that i'm extremely interested in of course that is generative of of their own times their own idiosyncratic times and so by working alongside with and through the object we actually gain some sense of its its being its relations its past its times but when it comes to the past and this is something that we learn and in the spirit of triple o i can actually state here you know which past are you speaking of you know when you think of kind of an object you know like a pot uh, there's the past of the object's emergence it's making um there's the past of the object's interaction that is say the pot was used and bears residues it was dropped and it was cracked there's the past that marks change and we often say the memory held by the pot or the pot fragment that was shattered or by a mud brick oven that incorporates the pots pieces into it retrospect you know in in, in, in its uh, kind of afterlife or, it's the past of its total duration—that is, its age and longevity. What Graham was just speaking about there, when it comes to humans and mountains and various other uh, other objects. Um, so, and that's also interesting because the fact that it persists beyond its, beyond its intended uses is one of the fundamental lessons of archaeology for all of us. That's why archaeology is so important right now. All things, all objects, kind of have those different timelines, and they live beyond our intended purposes to go on to their own lives. So they have unforeseen circumstances that are out there, but if you look at those four ways that I just kind of uh, kind of dealt with it there, the past of the object's emergence, the past of the object's interaction, the past that marks the change, and the and the kind of um, the past of its total duration, you can actually think of that in the way that Graham points out in the book that the former are extrinsic and the latter are intrinsic, and we can take that in the way you want. But that's one of the things that are exciting about the book is that. Um, we actually begin to put these kind of examples in in friction with the kind of uh, triple O and, and all kinds of very interesting kind of insights are coming spilling out all over the place. I hope, um, and so um, this is also one of the things that are so exciting about this book for me because I as a longtime reader of Graham as well. To really get into the interior workings of time with respect to Graham's work and his fourfold ontology, that's just absolutely fantastic. And to have that with archaeological examples, I think this is one
0: of the most powerful things about the book, although there are many powerful kind of attributes of it, Adam. So here we go. I think we're both influenced by Bruno Latour's conception that time happens when an asymmetry is created. Yeah, Uh, Latour, of course, was always against this idea that he called modern that uh things are constantly changing getting better and uh mind and matter are constantly being separated and the real and the artificial are constantly being separated and so over time progress is kind of an automatic uh course of things Mm -hmm. whereas uh for me and for chris i think uh it's the objects that create the asymmetry and that uh you can put objects together in a certain combination, and when you take them apart so that they're no longer in combination, you haven't restored things to the way they were were before. So That's I'm wearing my basketball hat today, and since I'm a big NBA fan, <clears throat> if I think about the Brooklyn Nets around 2018, they were a scrappy, energetic team without any superstars, and then they made the decision to get uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and eventually James Harden. Now all three of those players are gone, and they're back to having a team of energetic, scrappy, sub-star players that made the playoffs uh, regardless. But they're not the same as they were, right? Uh, the Brooklyn Nets are out now in this traumatic post superstar era, and it's probably going to affect what they do next. So an asymmetry has definitely been created there. Um, they had one of the best potential NBA teams of all time, and it didn't work out for various reasons. So that's just another example of how um, uh, you can't ever really restore things to the way they were. Uh, and that, that's what time is, an asymmetry. Yep, exactly right. This segues beautifully into uh,
1: Professor Whitmore's chapter which uh touches on sort of three different conceptions of time linear time not only three conceptions of time but he talks about linear time topological time and percolating time professor whitmore could you describe explain maybe what these three different conceptions of time are
2: so uh by linear we mean the notion of time moving forward in a way that it leaves behind the past and though we don't always formulate it in this way uh, you know the perfect tense expresses an event whose consequences endure yet is it's still a past event. So, you know, archeologists who think with a linear notion of time tend to regard their objects, they encounter in the perfect tense. That is they're indicative of that, which occurred as generated from that past so that the object that we're looking at exists as a consequence of a past. That's not here, it's elsewhere. And so it also it, it, you know, the perfect is that which is completed. So it kind of assumes that, you know, World War II ends and, you know, uh, the say on, in northern Norway where I work at Svarholt, uh, the Germans kind of uh, move out or in 1942 and then that ends the war, effects of World War II in that particular area. But everything that's there extends. I mean, it, it continues to affect the infrastructure they leave behind, what they bomb, what they destroy. It, it persists in such a way that it still very much affects those, uh, those people today. So at any rate, situated in a position of anteriority from the beginning, the archaeologist can only ever occupy a position kind of secondary to reality of that, which has already occurred. And so, you know, that kind of res gestae, those things done kind of recede deeper and deeper in the past. And that's really tied to the linear time. Topology, of course, is a branch of mathematics that's concerned with those spaces that are invariant within, say, a kind of homeomorphic transformation. So, you know, Michel Serre uses the famous metaphor, the handkerchief, which we discuss in the book, you know, you flatten it out, you sketch a circle on its surface, points marked around the outside of the circle are separated by measurable distances. But if you fold it, crumple it up, two points that were previously separated by distances are now suddenly quite proximate. And so, you know, as we define topological time, objects' distance in a calendrical system are quite proximate in terms of their formal similarities. Um, So you can have pleats and folds that are common, uh, that are quite common archeologically. So physically, for example, you can have bronze age walls at Mycenae that are part of a polis in the archaic period, you know, several hundred years later, or that provide an enclosure for sheep in the 19th century. Those, Through the extension of the wall, you still have these folds and pleats between these various kind of times. Um, But we also, in that formal sense, you can have a structure like the, and this is, you know, related to Graham's interest in architecture, a Mycenaean megaron, which is a structured around in such a way that you have a throne. Placed on the other side of a hearth, you have a temple where a statue is placed on the other side of a cella. You have an exhibition space of a museum where you have people gather, and then it's separated by a sign and a cordon from what's being framed, the object out there. And all three of these objects stage, separate, delimit, divide off. All three uphold hierarchies: an area for concentrating observers over here, an area for upholding a position of strength over there. So they kind of get you get those folds and pleats between these formal qualities of these these different objects all at Mycenae, which is really interesting and then of course percolation well this is a time that kind of pools in reservoirs it settles in pockets it filters it siphons it accelerates it bursts it creeps slowly it ruptures it turns back it's something that you know comes out of my um long you know kind of appreciation of ser um and and for me percolation really just provides this kind of image that enriches how we might conceive of time. It challenges us to think about it in kind of, uh, I think, uh, heterogeneous ways, right? And for me, it's just kind of this way of glossing the sum of all these heterogeneous examples,
0: idiosyncratic times that emerge out of objects. And uh, one of the great examples of Serh that we discuss in the book is his comparison of the space shuttle Challenger disaster to the sacrifice of children to the god ball in northern Africa. Uh, because even though you could make, not just make the case, but it seems on the surface as if the, the space shuttle accident was not a human sacrifice, because that wasn't our purpose, to kill the astronauts, Sarah makes the case that statistically, there are going to be a certain number of, of deaths in space exploration. And so immense social resources went into both cases, And uh, uh, in both cases, you had a fiery death of humans who became almost sacred as a result. And so it looks like these old religious forms are archaic and barbaric and left centuries in the past, but they're really not. I also uh, was reminded of the case of automobile races, where uh, the flirtation with death is what fascinates many of the fans most. Uh, the indianapolis 500 has the feel of a potential human sacrifice even though there have been no in-race fatalities since 1973 i believe there's always that chance or horses right and how many horses have been euthanized in the last few weeks at the top races so same kind of thing there um in in terms of folding and, and percolation uh i have a couple of experiences both from turkey i i have this this turkish turn in my life because my wife is turkish and uh, one experience was writing my most popular book, *Object Oriented on Ontology: A New Theory of Everything*. Literally just a couple of miles from the ruins of Miletus, where Thales launched Western philosophy by saying everything is made of water, and here I was, two thousand five hundred years later, two thousand six hundred years later, still working on the philosophy that Thales had helped launch. The other one is going to my first uh, for my first time to Troy, the ruins of Troy, a couple summers ago where, first of all, there are so many more different layers of Troy than you expect. And the Troy of the Trojan War is fairly late in that series. So it has this ancient history already by the time of the Trojan War, which is ancient for us. Another surprise is an exhibit at the museum at Troy of how Troy was a tourist site for people like Julius Caesar and later um, uh, Mehmet II. So already those people regarded it with a kind of ancient awe, um, so it was already old for them. And then the other thing is standing inside the ruins of Troy and just looking across the, uh, the straits and seeing a giant Turkish flag to mark the Battle of Gallipoli or Çanakkale from World War I, a formative event in Turkish, uh, modern Turkish history, and also really derailed the career of Winston Churchill for a while. That was one of the major defeats inflicted on a Western imperial power by a, a country often not seen as part of the West per se. Though, though Turkey has a European history for the past few centuries. Anyway, so these are some of the other examples of uh, these alternative types of time that Chris was just talking about.
1: Professor Whitmore, how does archaeology differ from history? And maybe, it, uh, you know, I'm a, a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology, so also if you want to uh, throw in anthropology
2: in there, I would love that as well. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, well... You know, archaeology doesn't deal with the past that was, it deals with what becomes of it. And so, if you think about social cultural anthropology, we deal with what becomes of us, not necessarily us. You know, we're always dealing with the residues, the afterlives, the things that extend beyond the circumstances of life, which also pertains to history. Um, my colleague Laurent Olivier, who we discuss in the book in a couple of places, regards this in the following way You know, whereas history is concerned with what happens to people, archaeology deals with what happens to things. I don't see the distinction as so taxonomic. Um, you can have historians that work on non-human objects, just as you have archaeologists who work with indigenous communities or are concerned with particular historical periods. Rather, the field <clears throat> has its own idiosyncratic practices and objects that work out towards particular kinds of past, And I think that archaeology has not had an opportunity to define itself outside or from under the shadows of history fully. It's always in some sense, you know, often referred to as the handmaiden of history. It's always kind of seen. I mean, it's part of the monopoly that history has over the past. It's seen as kind of fulfilling and working towards that monopoly. So if, you know, history is the narrativized course of events, then, you know, archaeology has mimicked history and has generated that. But it actually also deals with pasts that have never been narrativized. And, and, and do not necessarily comply with narrative history, those expectations. They can't be fit there. You know, for 200 years, this was seen as a weakness for archaeology, for non-textual objects were always judged in light of historical text, um, which constituted sources. And they were treated as sources kind of analogous to historical text. So, for example, we discussed uh, you know, James George Fraser in the book. Um, Fraser once said that without Pausanias, who was this Roman kind of traveler, uh, early ethnographer uh, traveling around Greece in um, the kind of second century CE, without his text, which was this travelogue of his travels in Greece, um, the Perigis just the ruins of Greece, according to Fraser, would for the most part be a labyrinth without a clue, a riddle without an answer. <laughs> And this assertion makes patent this kind of idea that without narrative frames, ruins, objects, not, you know, kind of non-discursive things like that would simply conjure wonder and confusion. You know, they're kind of erratic, unruly, impartial. And, and this is the point that, that erratic, unruly, uh, kind of uh, fragmented set of past, those objects have their own is, is, is idiosyncratic past that, that, ultimately produce something other than history that can be thought about as other than history. And they actually realize past that are other than history. And that's what I'm extremely interested in trying to understand. Um, Not at the expense of history, because I think we can come around and do good history. But I think that, you know, because history has had this monopoly on the past, um, because when we think of the past, we actually think in terms of narrativized history. We think of in terms of human events but there are other pasts and there were other pasts for, you know, at the time of Thales, uh, you know, there's memory, there's epic, there's object memory, there's fantasy, there's myth, there's ruin. There's all these things that resist the kind of narrativized versions that we come to appreciate through the likes of Herodotus and even more through Thucydides in terms of a particular fidelity to events and the way that they were lived without recourse to the gods or superstition of other things. And I think that, those other paths were sidelined and actually appropriated through the very success of historical studies, uh, as a professionalization, you know, and you don't have to come to me for that. You can go to Hayden White, who's pointed out that, you know, when history has made the official custodian of the past in this book, the practical past, it actually appropriated these other forms. And so for White to use the historic, the term historical as a modifier of the substantive past indicates exclusion and, uh, kind of condensing together, so exclusion of any past for, uh, from the historical is other than historical. It doesn't come part of it, and then the past is then seen as only historical. And I, and I think that what makes archaeology different is its concern for, with the idiosyncratic past that belongs to individual objects: temple columns, walls, threshold, pots, roads. We talk about all these things in the book without recourse to the narrative course of human events. Now, this is not to say that the archaeological past replaced history. It can't not do that because it's just different. And so what I'm trying, what we're trying to do, what I'm interested in doing is try to understand what that difference is and articulate it because I think it fundamentally matters. And part of that also, to do good history means you have to resist appropriating those objects over to history at the start. (laughs) Because if you do that, you're missing the object. You're just kind of generating history without really engaging the object and you've lost it. And so um, I think that this difference that that is so important for me, at least, is trying to last learn how to explain our objects in their own terms before we jump to explaining them in terms of
0: something else. As you're speaking here, Chris, this reminds me of what used to be called physics envy in the sciences, as if poor non-physicists, they're all subordinated to us because ultimately all science is about physics. Well, not really. Uh, chemists have rightly fought back against that because chemistry is dealing with emergent entities that can't really be explained at the physical level, at least not at the subatomic level. That's right. And geology, the same thing. So these sciences all have their autonomy. They are not mere spin-offs from physics. And I suppose there's something analogous going on here with archaeology and history. Yes, I, I think so, Graham. I also, what I appreciate about archaeology, and I've written about this, and I don't think all archaeologists appreciate this argument. I, I like the fact that archaeology is often lacking in the kinds of detail that history tries to provide. So for instance, I read this morning about archaeologists discovering in the jungles of Guatemala, 400 and some Mayan cities connected by 110 miles of what they call superhighway. And yes, I'd like to know more about these places. What were the names of these places? What exactly did they do? But the fact that we can't know all those things allows us to speculate on uh, deeper structures of human society, perhaps we can we can look for the um, less detailed aspects that are there in any situation. If I can repeat a story here, um, I, I read this article my freshman year in freshman lab at St. John's College. It was about uh, Louis Agassiz, the famous uh, biologist of the 19th century, who um, on the first day of class he told his students at Harvard. There's something about this fish in front of you that I want you to to find out and let me know what it is. And so the students go through all these measurements that become more and more complex, and they're weighing it, and they're dissecting it and finding all these more and more remote facts about the fish. And the, the professor keeps saying, no, that's not it. That's not it. Look better. Look harder. And in the end, what he was trying to get them to say is that the fish are symmetrical, which is so obvious that no one would think of saying it, and yet you have to step back and notice that just like Kant had to step back and notice that, Oh, all of our experience happens in space and time and according to the laws of cause and effect. And it didn't have to be that way, Mm -hmm. right? The fish didn't have to be symmetrical. And so I actually admire this about archeology span that they can look at broader shifts across time. I, I link this to what I call Marshall McLuhan's idea of cold media. Marshall McLuhan isn't always taken seriously by everyone in academia. He has a following. I'm part of that following. And one of my favorite ideas is the difference between cold and hot media. The fact that cold media simply don't provide as much information. You have to fill a lot of it in yourself. And that's not always a defect. Um, In some ways, I'm happy that we only have the fragments of the pre-Socratics. Obviously, if someone offered me the full books of the pre-Socratics, I would take them and read them. But there's a certain advantage to only having intermittent highlights recorded by Aristotle from the pre-Socratics. It allows us to focus on more general trends in philosophy. And history forgets this way too, right? So we have thousands of philosophers active right now. How many of them will still be read in 500 years? A handful at yeah. most. And in some ways, that's a tragedy because the work of so many will be lost. But in other ways, that's it's a necessity. And it's also a virtue because you can focus on the general trends rather than on the mass of total human production. And that's just that's simply how things work with time.
1: You mentioned Kant, and that links beautifully also into this next question, Professor Harmon. Uh, what distinguishes time and space
0: in object-oriented ontology? All right, if you look up object-oriented ontology, or O as I call it, anywhere, what, what it's probably going to say, whatever source it is, is that O thinks objects withdraw, that objects hide, that you can't get it at them directly. And that's true, but you don't need me for that. You can find that in Kant with the thing in itself. You can find that in Heidegger with the way the being is veiled or withdrawn. So that's there I'm simply inheriting one of the great insights of the last few centuries of philosophy, even if people are uneasy with it. What Tripolo is really about is that there are two different principles that intersect. There's not only the difference between the hidden and the manifest, or the real and the sensual, as I call them. There's also the difference between the object and its own qualities. And this isn't as well studied in the history of philosophy. It goes all the way back to Aristotle when he talks about the difference between substance and accidents, that Socrates standing and Socrates sitting are still the same Socrates, or Socrates happy and sad are both Socrates, which means that in a way objects both have and do not have their qualities because you can change your qualities quite drastically. Sometimes any object can change its qualities within certain limits without becoming a different thing. Edmund Husserl picked this up again in the 20th century when he founded phenomenology. Uh, But he was dealing with the level of perceptual, sensual experience rather than with real substances the way Aristotle was. So if you, incidentally, that second axis that I call, as I call it, between the object and its qualities is in radical opposition to the philosophy of David Hume, who says that there are no objects, there are just bundles of qualities, there's nothing called an object over and above the list of th- all the things we can truly state about it. And this is what I call literalism. The idea that in principle, you can replace any object with a list of true statements about it, all the true statements that you can make about it. And I say that isn't the case. And so what O is really about is the intersection of these two axes, the ma- the hidden and the manifest and the object and its qualities. So you end up with four different kinds of things, real objects, real qualities, sensual objects, sensual qualities. And the way that these interact uh, is the method Triple O uses to analyze any situation. So in the case of space and time, what we have is two completely different uh, sets of of, uh, tensions, as I call them, between different kinds of objects and qualities. So let's look, for instance, at time, at what we mean by time uh, in our everyday experience. So we we forget about Einstein and Minkowski here. Uh, A different interpretation will have to be made of this. What you really experience when you experience time is a kind of change within endurance. So here I am, things are moving around. I see cars moving on the streets. But there's not this mere chaos or rhapsody, as Kant calls it, of flashing colors and sparks. There are certain enduring things that are moving. And this is what we mean by the lived experience of time. Uh, Any other meanings of time, I would say, are derivative of that one. That's really what we mean by time. The fact that things are changing, but it's the same things that are there that are changing, showing different facets of themselves. So that's what I call the tension between sensual objects and their sensual qualities. Nothing is hidden there. Time is not hidden. Time is actually on the surface layer of the cosmos. And that doesn't mean I'm a Platonist because I'm not. I don't believe objects are eternal. I simply think that the surface is the place where causal relations happen. Things don't touch each other's depths. Things make fleeting encounters on the surface. And so time is actually where causal reality happens on the surface of reality. Then with space, it's something different. Uh, With space, uh, let's talk first of all about Martin Heidegger's famous tool analysis, which my first book is about. Heidegger talks about how, for the most part, we don't notice equipment until it goes wrong. So if you're hammering, you're thinking about the nail you're pounding, you're thinking about the house you're trying to build, you're thinking about the wonderful life you're going to have in this house. And then suddenly the hammer shatters and draws your attention to it for the first time. And I have a lot of problems with the way that's normally interpreted, but we'll leave that for another occasion. Uh, what's really going on there is you have a, a real object, the hammer, which you don't totally know even after it smashes in your ha- shatters in your hands, right? So the real object is still there. The hammer is hidden behind all of those surface symptoms of its breakdown. But then you have a whole litany of sensual qualities that are directly accessible to you. There's the shattered hammerhead, and there's the bent nail, or whatever else there is from that situation as a remnant. And why I identified that with space, well, I think it was John Locke who who first convinced me that we don't really perceive space. Space has to be inferred, because Everything is, in a certain sense, on the surface for me. Everything's at an equal distance from me because I'm seeing it. I'm seeing this coffee cup that's right in front of me, but I'm also seeing the housing project or the apartment complex across the street, which is further. And I could look out if I were in the other room and look out and see Santa Catalina Islands, which is 25 miles away uh, across the channel. But in a sense, all those are in direct contact with me when we just look at perception, right? Because they're all accessible to me. And any notion that one of them is further from the other is not a purely phenomenal uh, judgment. It has to be uh, brought into the real somehow. It has to be the fact that, yes, even though Santa Catalina is as close to my eyes as this cup is, uh, it's at a distance in the real. It would take more effort to get there than it does to grab the coffee cup and drink from it. And so with space, uh, an object oriented ontology, you have a tension between real objects and their sensual qualities. So the real is coming into play there. And then the other two I call essence and Ados, and I won't go into those, but, uh, the fact that there are four tensions rather than just two means we need to stop talking about just space time or time space as though these are the two unique and peerless dimensions of the cosmos, um, People have had all kinds of theories about how to unify or disunify time and space. I don't recall any other writer ever suggesting that they were not alone and that there were other things that belong on the same footing. The fact that I interpret space and time in terms of an object quality tension means there are two other places there. Just like you have empty places in the periodic table at different points in the history of chemistry, and you go looking for them, and essence and adols are two other ways that an object can be in tension with its own qualities. So we need to have, ask a fourfold question here, and not just ask about time and space.
1: Professor Whitmore, do you have anything to add?
2: Oh no, I I I, I think uh, this is this is one of the fruitful conversations to come out of the book and how uh, kind of. There are retroactive ways in which the surface kind of changes an object into something else. And that, in a way, has sparked the kind of thought that goes into the next question. So perhaps there's a way that we, can, we will get into the next question. We can come uh, kind of touch upon some of these points that Graham's making.
1: Just yeah, we perfect. we can get into the next question right now. Can you talk about uh, this concept you develop of anthropoiesis and uh, how that uh, relates to the triple O concept of time?
2: Yeah, you, well, you know, anthropoiesis is a concept is something that really emerged from our collaboration, and and in some sense, you know, we kind of discuss it in the book. I mean, only fleetingly because. When we originally envisioned this book, and I guess we can say this here, Graham, I mean that, you know, we had this kind of another another chapter at the end that was going to come and where we were going to really have the symbiosis of OOO and archaeology through anthropoesis. And as we began to think through this chapter and the implications of it, it, became, it actually grew so large that it was no way that we could imagine doing it justice in this book. So we've, we took it out. And it's something that, that Graham and I are, are kind of working away at and thinking about and discussing um, now, but uh, in the background, and we'll see what becomes of it. Um, but, you know, anthropoesis, as we define it, is just it's, it's an alternative theory of hominization that operates on the basis not of selection and competition, but of cooperation and symbiosis. As you know, Graham has had this kind of Really fruitful interaction with the thought of Lynn Margulis and symbiosis in in, in his book *In Materialism*, which we should which which you call the archaeology Graham. <laughs> yes. um, but it, basically, if you think about it, um, uh, there is no n- 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 uh, kind of non anthropocentric take on human evolution. Uh, the OOO actually operate opens a completely different way of understanding it. So. You know, every major change in human evolution, we might contend, actually emerges from a merger between two autonomous enemies, human and non-human. So Ashley and hand axes, architectures, guided flora, automobiles, and those are absorbed into a new compound object. So, you know, for example, through a symbiosis with automobiles, humans emerge actually, to borrow a term that Peter Sloderdijk uses, as centaurs. That's because the psychology of automobiles and our way of thinking about our interaction with the world and speed has radically transformed. We don't think as walking bipeds anymore. We actually think in radically different distances, uh, by and large, and and it changes what it is to be human. So, what that means is that you know anthropoi at various times by entering into symbiosis, symbiosis with. Non humans actually emerge as these kind of autonomous entity entities that are also components of this larger compound object. So we get into the kind of OOO terminology. But what this does is it offers a really inclusive biological alternative to theories of evolution, which are usually based upon a notion of externalization now. Externalization, which was championed by Andre Leroy Garon, uh, McLuhan, this is a very McLuhan concept, also Michel Serre is where tools or media were seen as outward and amplified forms of human organs. So this is kind of what Sarah uses this term exo Externalization means that the human body forms this kind of stable core of technological extensions. Uh, our fist is improved with a hammer which replicates Replicates the clenched fist and the elongated forearm. Uh, and Marshall McLuhan like, likewise spoke of both clothing and houses as extensions of the skin. With the former, you have this kind of direct extension of an outer surface of the body. The latter, you have this kind of extended inner heat control mechanisms of the organism. But externalization kind of what it does is it broadcasts the human in two ways simultaneously, both as the nexus and the model. For technology, for tools. So the first path is ostensibly anthropocentric because it centers upon the process of evolution of the human body, the hub around which change occurs in the realm of kind of externalized prostheses. So our memory is transferred to books, our strength is multiplied in the ox. And the second path Is seemingly anthropomorphic, which renders objects as replica of human organs, arms, legs, teeth, hands, nervous systems, or brains. And such externalization is the replaceability of an organ by an enhanced organ. So what happens is that you know these theories confront this ancient certainty about where the human ends, where the outside begins. It also replicates this modern taxonomic divide because. Um, you get, you get the circum, it kind of circumvents the divide between humans and tools because, but what happens is that it actually appears to cast the order of being in one direction. The hammer emanates from the clenched fist, the handle from the lengthened arm. So what happens if you conceive of tools as arising from hominid bodies, as architectures from human bodies, what role do you lead to those tools as architectures in forming the body of which it's already seen as a part, Right. And this is standard, oh, oh, oh. I mean, it teaches us that um, we can actually think about a radically different understanding of human cultures. And this comes right back to anthropology, as you know, because if you actually think in terms of anthropoesis... Uh, we actually have multiple humanities that we haven't even begun to understand the nature of and it's phenomenal. So the guiding model for anthropoesis, instead of externalization is actually one of human internalization. That is internalizing external entities, many of them non-human or even inanimate, that transform what it is to be human. And so um, when we say humanities in the plural, you actually have to have something in place to describe them. So centaurs for automobile cultures, uh, you know, you uh, you have uh, many other terms that we can use. Teamsters for people for humans that work with companion species. You know, you have uh, these concepts that kind of emerge in labeling what these different cultures are, and and there is a sense in which this kind of gives us an image of an epochal uh, kind of a model of time that follows epochs, right? But these epochs are not necessarily universal, because you can have human societies that are really one set of relationships, one kind of uh, kind of compound entity that are existing alongside others. If you put them in a timeline, they may seem like they're out of joint temporally, but in fact, they're quite coextensive with each other and given presence. So it's actually a really profound kind of concept that changes, um, how we understand what it is to be human over the, over,
0: over the long term. And there's so much we can do with it. And this does link with my interest. And I think Chris's interest in Lynn Margulis and her concept of serial endosymbiosis as an alternative to Darwinian evolution. Those who aren't familiar with her work can simply read Symbiotic Planet, which was the first work I read. And it just, uh, it's one of the most imagination firing books of science I've read in the last few decades. Um, It also links with what interests me about political theory in recent years. Um, And this comes out of some ideas that Bruno Latour and Shirley Strum had when they went and observed baboons in the wild, uh, which has to do with the fact that the human political sphere is stabilized by inanimate objects. Uh, One of the problems with, actually the central problem with modern political theory, which, organizes things along, along a left-right axis, which seems eternal to many people, but it only goes back to the French Revolution, is competing theories of human nature. So on the left, you have this idea that humans are basically good or at least improvable, and any defects of humanity have to do with the corruptions of society or some greedy upper class that tries to deprive others. And then on the right, you have this idea of hum- the human is a dangerous animal that is capable of monstrous evil acts and needs to be controlled by force for that reason. And that humans are not really going to be improved, that human nature is about the same as it's always been. And recently, David Graeber and David Wengrow wrote that smash bestseller, The Dawn of Everything. And there's a lot of interesting things in there that were new to me. Um, I don't know if they're new to Chris, uh, but... The theory, what didn't satisfy me, the theory they came up with is that humans aren't naturally good or evil. Humans are naturally imaginative and experimental. So there's this anarchist idea that we can play games with the the organization of society and we don't have to have capitalism forever. And all right, that might stimulate a lot of people as well, but it's still a theory of human nature. It's still a theory about politics being grounded on what we humans essentially are. When, in fact, uh, if you look at political history, uh, geography plays a great role. Technology plays a great role. Spices play a great role at certain times. Oil. um, There are all kinds of things that are not directly under human control that uh, change the way politics is done. Uh, The discovery of the seas changed geopolitics. And I've got Admiral Mahan's book here on my shelf, uh, The Great Advocate of Sea Power in the late 1800s. Um, the way that the British Empire and later the United States built their global reach, uh, mostly around the Navy and the ability to project power uh, through naval power. And whether you think that's a good or bad thing, you you need to study uh, the role the sea played as a political actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, The English Channel being a political actor that allowed Great Britain to remain independent of the continent in a number of ways, politically and culturally. Uh, so again and again, you find these these uh, examples of objects affecting history. Now, I think the resistance to that, at least from the left, is that when people bring in geography, it tends to be on the side of a kind of hard-nosed realpolitik, right? That the Turks and the Greeks will always naturally be enemies or something like that. And, and people on the left don't want to hear that because they want to think of human conflict as being something produced by the ruling class for its own benefit, Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think we need to take a closer look at what objects mean for politics. And I tried to do this to some extent in my book on the Dutch East India Company in materialism, where um, I tried to look at what were the essential symbioses that changed the company. And uh, I came up with five or six. One of them was a human. Uh, And a symbiosis for me in historical terms is something that creates an asymmetry for a historical object. So in the case of the Dutch East India Company, it was their fourth or fifth director, Jan Peterson Kohn, who was uh, extremely harsh in his ideas. But the Dutch East India Company would not have become what it became for better and for worse without him, because he, he is the one who came up with the document called the Discourse on the State of India, which said that the survival of the Dutch Republic requires that we play hardball here. And that we not only really crack down on the British and the French and other competitors for these spices, but that we also try to become the universal middleman for trade between Asian nations or between the Asians and the Arabs. Everything has to go through us, the Dutch East India Company. And that actually disturbed an already growing liberal public opinion in the Netherlands in the 1600s. But Cohn uh, forced the hand of the country by arranging for the massacre of a number of British By the Dutch forces, which made peace between the Dutch and the British impossible after that. It was just a bloodthirsty massacre of some British garrison forces. And then I also looked at a couple of geographical locations that were uh, essential uh, symbioses for the company. And then finally, um, from my research, I was able to learn that there was a very interesting point around 1650, give or take a couple of years, when The Dutch East India Company reconceived its mission. It had previously been a mission of long, long haul uh, round trip ships, right, that would get the pick up the spices, take them back to the Netherlands and bring back goods that the Asians might want to buy from the Netherlands. Uh, There came a point around 1650 when the company reconceived itself as more of an intra Asian company. And so they, sh- they shifted their fleet entirely from these large ships to more shallow-bottomed boats that could land in Asian river ports. And so there were a number of points that really established what the company was. At that point, you could say it reached a, a level of maturity, after which it went into a rise and then finally a decline when the environment started to shift, when Europeans no longer wanted spices but instead wanted chocolate, tea, and coffee, which the, bit- the British were better able to provide. And, uh, and then eventually the company died. So uh, that's another case of a major historical object. The first corporation and one of the first mass imperialist organizations uh, was established, and it was established largely by objects that it didn't produce itself, things that were in the environment that it incorporated, formed a symbiosis with, and was able to empower itself while also making a decision and pinning it down to certain things that weren't going to be effective forever. It became path dependent. So uh, I think politics and history also have a lot to benefit from this uh, uh, anthropoietic approach that Chris came up with, and we look forward we look forward to becoming the Deleuze and Guattari of anthropoids. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun, Graham. I'm I'm so excited about this. We've yes, already had
2: so a few exchanges out on this, and I mean it's real. They're really wonderful. Um, some of the kind of examples that we kind of work through and where we're going with this. And it is a contrast, of course, to Graeber and Wingro. I mean, this is is method. I mean, we're not quite sure what the outcome is going to be. We don't have this kind of thesis that we're trying to impose upon all of human history right. so that we can say, hey, look how creative and uh, uh, we are and look at how democracy is actually something we can find everywhere. I mean, uh Great and Wingrove kind of knew where they were going when they took it in there. And that's actually one of the great problems yeah. with these types of, of, of books, whether you look at Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs and Steel, or Ian Morris, Why the West, World of now or The Dawn of Everything. They kind of know where they're going. They have a thesis. Um, and, and, right. and And in many ways, that kind of is getting in the way of the lesson of the object, which precisely is that we can't quite foresee those differences. We have to work with it to find our way with it to get to them and and this is a very exciting thing and um yeah graham i'm looking forward to it it's gonna be great so it actually gives you a little bit of a sense of where we're going next
1: <laughs> i uh i've been waiting for this book for a very long time and you did not disappoint i read it immediately once i got it and i've had such fun going through these ideas this book is unquestionably one of my recent favorites And it's, you know, it's a brief 167 pages or something like this. And it's so incredibly dense and yet so absolutely readable. I really, really love this book. I have one final question, as you both know, which is a tradition here on the New Books Network. And that is to ask what you are working on now.
2: Professor Whitmore, you have a time crunch, so maybe you can go first. <laughs> well, you know, I, we just mentioned this book on anthropoesis, um, and I'm very excited about it. I'm even teaching uh, a class around it in the fall to really kind of um, to kind of prime the pump for thinking through it. I'm also putting the finishing touches on a book about uh, Svarho where I've collaborated with my uh, colleague, the archaeologist Bjorn Olson, who is also well known as kind of in circles of the object turn for his book in defense of things and many others we've already written one book together called archaeology the discipline of things uh, and this book is really looking at a kind of uh, bastion of world war ii it's a, also a russian ukrainian pow camp that was um under under the nazis during world war ii in nor- northern norway from the an archaeological angel, angle basically what can an archeo- archaeological approach bring to a period saturated by history i mean this is his fundamental question And the name of the book is actually called Four Pasts Other Than History. What comes out of it, of course, is this very different take on the nature of objects, their idiosyncratic times and their idiosyncratic past that we find and encounter here at Svarho. Also, something that's fundamental to archaeology that doesn't always get um uh the attention that it deserves although it's part of the popular conception is that you know archaeology does have uh, an ability to dig into the surface uh, and by digging into surfaces uh, kind of opening windows into what lies beneath our feet it, it kind of actually generates connections that we would never have understood had you not done that very act and and by digging its far hold over the last decade we have found things we've come to understand relationships we've gotten objects that suggest very strange uh kind of um relationships between guards and pow's uh the nature of what they're doing there their own occupancy um that kind of recast some of the taken for granted assumptions of say history um and so we're excited about the book, and and that's something that is going to be done here at the end of the summer, so it's, 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 it's uh, immediate.
0: As for me, uh, along with Anthropoiesis, I teased on our last podcast, Adam, that I was working on an archi- uh, architecture book, my second architecture book, and I was being a little coy about uh, what it was about, but I'll, I'll just break the silence here and say that it's Rem Kohlhaas. And th- the reason for that, first of all, the consensus seems to be emerging, if not unanimity, that Kohlhaas is the architect of, of our time in a way that Le Corbusier was for an earlier moment in modernism. And uh, Architecture and Objects, a book I think we discussed on this podcast, I, the two main contemporary architects I, I discussed there, I discussed the number, but the two main ones who played a role in that book were Peter Eisenman and Rem Kohlhaas. And I'm I probably did a better job of completing the Peter Eisenman Analysis. Um, I'm pretty confident of what Eisenman means in terms of my views on architecture. Uh, Kohlhaas played an important role at the end of my book, but I'm not entirely sure what I think about Kohlhaas yet. And that's, I like to write books about things where I don't know the answer rather than things where I think I know the answer because it forces me to come up with my opinion on something when I don't have one. And Kohlhaas, uh, there's such a range of different reactions to him. There are, there are people who love him and call him the master architect of our time. There are those who call him a cynic who simply wants influence and money and power. Um, he sometimes present him, presents himself as someone who's just trying to solve programmatic problems. Others think he's a sneaky formalist who uses that as a rhetorical way of designing cool forms. And so there are just so many different uh, positions one could take on Kohlhaas. And so that's why I'm working on him. Uh, next, among the architects. Fantastic, and I look forward to having you both on again. Oh yes, our with our anthropologists. Yes, one hundred percent. We look forward to that.
2: <laughs> thank you, Adam.
1: The book is Objects Untimely, published in 2023 by Polity Press. Professor Whitmore, Professor Harmon, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank Thanks you for Adam. Having
1: me.